Romans chapter 8, as we begin back into the book of Romans, uh, the series on the hope of glory, security that we have, the future glory that we have in Christ. Romans chapter 8, we're going to be starting in verse 18. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those, for those who love God, and all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers." And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let me pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us as we look in your word together today. As we consider what it means that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed to us. As we understand, Lord, and consider the magnitude of our sin, and your judicial declaration against our sin that we see in the suffering in this world. We pray that we would be repentant of our sin, that we would understand the magnitude of the God whom we sinned against. Lord, that we would understand the work of your gospel that you have done and the incredible hope that that gives us, that while we suffer now, it is only a temporal suffering. It is only a suffering for this present time. And it is not worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the great Protestant reformer, John Calvin, made this statement that the creation, the creation, all the creation, is the theater of God's glory. The creation is the theater of God's glory. It is in the creation where God's glory is demonstrated, where His glory is played out or shown or on display for us. The creation is like the great theater in which we see God's magnificence and God's beauty and God's power and God's majesty. And I think most of us agree with Calvin that that's the case, especially when we're on trips to the beach and it's a sunset, right? When we see it, or when we're at the mountains, and the, or just looking at the mountains after it's rained in Bakersfield and all that garbage is cleared out, and you see the sun coming up, and it's glorious, isn't it? And you see God's glory on display. If you saw the recent Hubble telescope images that have just come out, glorious. However, 
when a tsunami hits and wipes out cities and nations, or when a hurricane destroys a city, or when an earthquake wreaks havoc throughout a state, a tornado takes out a home, we think the picture is a lot more grim, don't we? And we wonder about God. When disease or famine or pestilence or drought hit, when families are falling apart and economies are tanking and nations are at war and governments are failing and genocide is being attempted and marriages are separating and children are rebelling and babies are dying and people are lying and stealing and gossiping, when all of that's happening, we begin to think, if we're honest, we sometimes struggle with the thought that maybe God is cruel or impotent, meaning he lacks power. Or maybe he's uncaring or he's distant. Or maybe he doesn't exist at all, don't we? Some of you are experiencing your marriages falling apart even as I speak right now. Some of you have children that are suffering from terrible diseases. Some of you are losing your jobs or businesses or have lost your jobs. Some of you are suffering from illnesses yourselves or you've watched loved ones die recently. And so when I tell you that this creation, this creation is the theater of God's glory, you must think in some of those instances that John Calvin or that I have completely lost our minds. You might think to yourself, and say to me, have you seen the genocide that happened in Rwanda and Congo and the Sudan and in Germany during World War II? Have you seen it? Have you seen what Stalin did and Mao? Have you seen what Pol Pot did? Are you paying any attention? Have you seen the tsunami that killed almost 200,000 people? Or the hurricane? that wiped out a city, killed hundreds, and left thousands homeless? Did you see the people standing at the edge of the windows in the Twin Towers as the planes hit and jumped to their death? Have you stayed up late at night crying as your little daughter is ravaged by disease? Did any of that happen to you? Are you paying any attention? How can you say this is the theater of God's glory? You might even be saying, you know what? To be totally frank, if this is God's demonstration of his glory, if this is the theater, then excuse the language, but I think this show sucks. I think this is awful. If that's what God's glory is really like, if that's the show, if this is the theater, then give me back the price of admission. I want out. I want nothing to do with it. Apparently, John Calvin must have never suffered, and apparently you haven't either, and apparently the Apostle Paul really didn't, for him to say that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy. They don't even have any weight when compared to the glory that's to be revealed to us. Look, I'm not claiming or pretending to have suffered like some of you have. I'm not. I'm not saying I haven't lost loved ones. I lost my father when I was a young boy. I'm not saying that I haven't watched disease ravage my child from my son almost died twice in his first year of life. However, I don't compare my suffering or pretend that it's as bad as some of yours. I just don't. 
I know it's not. Now, John Calvin, that's another matter. When he makes this claim, he makes it as a man whose wife and child both died young. He makes it as a man who was desperately sick with kidney stones and hemorrhoids and other issues that couldn't be solved at the time. He was persecuted. He was exiled for three years for his faith. He trained several young pastors who were killed. He saw them burned, murdered for their faith. He was in such pain at times that the elders of the church would have to come to his house and dress him to bring him to preach. You know that? They'd come to his house and dress him, and then they would carry him to the church because the Reformation was on and people wanted to hear the word. And they would bring him to the pulpit. At times he couldn't stand. He was in so much pain, he would be on his hands and knees at the pulpit, at the front, and the people usually crowds of a thousand or more, would gather up to hear him whisper his sermon because that's the most strength he could get out. That man declared creation, all creation, is the theater of God's glory. Why? How could he do that? Because he understood something deeply important. He understood something the Apostle Paul, a man who suffered bitterly, wrote here. He understood that the sufferings, verse 18, of this present time are not worth comparing. Not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. See, I want you to understand something. We're in the theater, this creation, the theater of God's glory. We're in that theater. And the show isn't over yet. Yeah, it looks really grim right now but the show isn't over. There's another act to come. Have you guys been to a play before? You know, plays are usually broke up, broken up into acts, right? Act one, act two, act three, act four, et cetera, et cetera. The play looks bad right now, but please, hang on is what Paul is saying. Hang on for the final act. It's not over. We're, we're in act three of a four-act play, if you want to put it that way. What are the four acts? Well, creation is the first act. God created everything, and it was good. It was very good. Act two, man sinned and fell and brought suffering and curse to this earth, and he rebelled against God and brought not only physical death but spiritual death. And God promised to send a a redeemer, Jesus Christ. Act three, Jesus came, and he saves us from spiritual death. That's the third act. Act four, it's called redemption. Act four, restoration. That's when God, the Son, Jesus, returns to restore all things to what they were going to be, what they were intended to be in the creation. Glorious. But while we're in this third act, we have the promise. We have the promise, the guarantee that that fourth act is coming. But you know what? We still suffer as if we're in act two, the fall, don't we? We still see the effects all around us. So here's what I want to get at today. No matter how terrible, no matter how terrible the suffering we endure as believers, it is not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. Not worth comparing. And because this is true, we suffer as those with hope, not as those with no hope. Notice I didn't say we don't suffer as believers, did I? 
We suffer. We're guaranteed. Philippians 1.29, it's been appointed unto us, not only to believe, but to suffer. Romans 8.17, and if you're children, then you're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We do not get to the glory until we suffer with him. Suffering now, in this present age, glory to come. We suffer, but we suffer with hope. Those who know God as our supreme treasure, those who know God as our superior, we know he's never going to let go of us. We know we have great hope. And in order to demonstrate this biblical truth, I want to do this. I want to provide two reasons why we suffer. Two reasons why we suffer now. And four reasons why we can suffer as those with hope. Okay? Two reasons why we suffer now and four reasons why we can suffer with those as hope. Okay, first, the first reason why we suffer now is because God has made a judicial declaration against our sin that is showing up now. He has made a judicial declaration against our sin that we see the effects of even now. Why does this act look so grim? Because the main characters, you know the main characters in this act are? Man are not fulfilling their role properly. We're not playing our role properly. We have sinned, and therefore, therefore, it looks grim. Look at Romans 8, verse 20. Look at what Paul says, verse 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to futility, The creation, not just man, the creation was subjective utility. In other words, the creation could not do what it was intended to do. It was subjected to futility. Not willingly, it didn't choose this, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Who subjected it in hope? Well, you know, some people say, well, it was Adam who subjected it. No, Adam did not subject the creation to bondage and decay in hope. Adam could provide no hope. Satan did not subject the creation to bondage and decay in hope. Satan could provide no hope, nor would he want to provide any hope. God subjected it. Look at Genesis chapter 3 and keep your hand there in Romans chapter 8. God subjected the creation to futility in hope. Genesis chapter 3. We know the story of Adam and Eve, uh, most of us anyways. The story is God created a man and a woman, the original man and a woman, in the Garden of Eden. He put them there. They were living perfectly with him in his presence. And he said one thing, don't eat the fruit of that tree. You can eat the fruit of every other tree, but not that one. That one I forbid you to eat. And they ate it. Serpent came to them and said to Eve, um, Eve, you know, that fruit looks really good. And Eve said, yeah, I think, I think it actually does. That looks really good. I should try that out. It looks like, you know, it would make one wise. I think I want it. And so Eve ate some, unless you think that um, Adam is off the hook. The text tells us Adam was there with her. She turned and gave some to him. Not like she went looking for him. He was there complicit in the deed. And so they recognized they were naked, they were ashamed because of their sin, and they went and hid in the bushes from God. And God came looking for them, not because God didn't know where they were. God came looking for them, and he said, where are you? And they were hiding. They had sown fig leaves, they're trying to cover themselves in their shame. 
They weren't seeking him. He was seeking them, right? And he pursued them and he found them. And he says to them, you know, to the woman, he says, I, I heard that you, uh, um, or I saw that you ate that fruit. Didn't I tell you not to eat it? Yeah, yeah, you did, but you ate it. And she says, or excuse me, first to Adam, I, I heard you ate it. And Adam says, yeah, that woman you gave me, she, she, uh, she made me eat it. You know, we don't know the emphasis of the text there. Is it that woman you gave me? Or is it that woman you gave me, right? Who, it seems to be both. He's blaming her and God. And then um, God comes to Eve and Eve goes, yeah, it was the serpent. And he came and he lied, tempted me. And so then God first curses the serpent. Look at verse 14 of chapter 3. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And here's the hope of the gospel coming out immediately, even in the curse. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I will send a man, the son of man, my son, Jesus Christ. You will strike his heel, you will put him to death, but he will crush you. He will win. That day is coming. And then he goes on and he says this to the woman. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. You can all be witnesses to that. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. In other words, the roles were going to get screwed up here. And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed, listen to this, cursed is the what? The ground, the earth, because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. The creation is subjected by God to the curse because of the sin of Adam. So every time you're at work and your plans at work are getting frustrated, does that happen to any of you or just me, right? Your plans are being frustrated. You can say, man, that fruit, Adam, you're killing me at work today, right? Which you would have done the same thing because the fall that work is frustrated. It's because the fall that creation is in disarray. God subjected it. Look, we're not deists. You know what a deist is? He's a person who believes that God wound up the universe. He created it, kind of wound it up, gave it some laws, and then sat back, watched it happen, and doesn't have any more involvement. We're not those people. We believe that God is intimately involved in his creation. We do not believe, we do not confuse God with his creation. However, we do believe that God is actively involved in his creation. Think of the second law of thermodynamics. You guys are all probably familiar with that and meditate on it each morning. Think... It's the law of entropy. You guys heard of this? It's the idea that over time, everything breaks down, doesn't it? Over time, the creation, everything dies. It breaks down. Listen, that's there because of sin. Hear that? There wasn't supposed to be a second law of thermodynamics in which all of creation would die. It was supposed to be eternal. If Adam and Eve had not eaten that fruit, they would have eaten the fruit of the tree of life instead, and they would have lived forever in this creation. And there would be no death and sin and mourning and suffering. But it's there because of sin. Everything is breaking down because of sin, because of the curse of God, because God made a judicial declaration against our sin. 
Speaking of God's judicial declaration against creation because of man's sin, John Piper said the following, therefore the meaning of all the misery, all the misery in the world is that sin is horrific. All natural evil is a statement about the horror of moral evil. If you see a suffering in the world that is unspeakably horrible, let it make you shudder at how unspeakably horrible sin is against an infinitely holy God. The meaning of futility and the meaning of corruption and the meaning of our groaning is that sin falling short of the glory of God is ghastly, hideous, repulsive beyond imagination. Hear that? It is because of our sin that the whole creation is in bondage to decay. Look at what Paul says in Romans 8.21. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God made a judicial declaration against the whole creation because of our sin. Our sin has brought all suffering, both natural suffering that we see in hurricanes, etc., and moral suffering. Our sin. Even hurricanes. Listen. Even hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes and tsunamis and viral and bacterial and fungal diseases are because of our sin and God's judicial declaration against it. Would there have been hurricanes or whatever? I don't know. Would they have harmed humanity? No. Would there have been viruses and bacteria? Probably. Would they have turned against their purpose and harmed humanity? No. What did Adam do? Really? All of the sin, think of it. Think of all of the wars and destruction and hatred and suffering and starvation and droughts, earthquakes, tornadoes, all of the suffering across the centuries in humanity. All of it, all of it caused by one sin. One sin. What'd he do? He ate a piece of fruit. Hear that? He didn't murder somebody. He didn't rape somebody. He didn't molest a child. He ate a piece of fruit that God told him not to eat. You see, we're so focused on what, what the magnitude of our particular sin is that we don't recognize the magnitude of the God against whom our sin is being committed. And so we think our sin is inconsequential. You know why Adam's sin had such great consequence? Because of the God against whom it was committed. Hear that? So the next time you think, oh, it's just a little sin, it's inconsequential, realize that all the world's suffering is happening because of that little sin. All the world's suffering is a signpost to the horror of our sin and God's coming judgment. All of it. It's a signpost to the horror of our sin and God's coming judgment. And all the grace that we experience each day, all the kindness we experience each day is a signpost of God's kindness to us and his design to save us through his son. Hear that? Second, um, not just because of God's judicial declaration we suffer now, but we suffer now because we are groaning, groaning knowing it should be better than this, don't we? In other words, because we know we should have something better than this, it actually increases the suffering at times, doesn't it? Because we know this is not the way it's supposed to be, and I have to be patient to wait for that. When I know I'm missing out on something, then it makes it worse, doesn't it? 
It can make it worse. We groan. We know we have a greater glory. We know this is not the way it's supposed to be. Look at verse 22 through 25 in Romans 8. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. We have some evidence that glory is coming. But we groan inwardly. Why? Because we're waiting eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for something better, for the glory that's to come. We're waiting for that. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? In other words, we don't have that glory yet. We don't see it. It hasn't arrived. We have a promise of it. We know it's coming, but we have to wait patiently. Verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We know we should be experiencing a greater glory. That's why we as believers often groan inwardly. Because we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We have some promise that's coming. And we have to be patient, and we know it should be better. So sometimes it increases our suffering because we, we know we're missing out on something better. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. As a side note, I think at times, I think at times that we can be deceived into wondering why God's picking on us. Why is God picking on me? What have I done wrong? I lost my job. Why? What did I do? As if every time I suffer, it's because God is unhappy with some act I participated in. Let's be clear. We groan inwardly, and so does the whole creation. Look, Christians, we need to get over our personal pity party, and we need to start realizing that our personal suffering may come down to the simple fact that we are in a fallen and sinful world under God's judicial declaration against our sin. This may come down to that. Is God going to use it? Is he working it out in your life for your good, for your sanctification? Yes. Is he potentially using it for your discipline? Yes. So that you be holy? Yes. Is it always necessarily caused by some sin you committed? No. Yes, in an indirect sense. You're a sinner and in a world full of sinners, and therefore they're suffering. But not necessarily in a direct sense. You committed this sin, and therefore now you've lost your job. Maybe you lost your job because the economy's bad, because we're in a world that's suffering. We groan inwardly, and so does the whole creation. We have got to start realizing that while this is not the way it's supposed to be, it is a fact that this is the way it is. This is the way it is. And knowing that this is the way it is, we also know that we have to be patiently waiting for what we do not yet see, our hope of glory. If we saw the glory we are patiently hoping for. Listen, if we saw the glory that we are patiently hoping for, that we are waiting for, if we saw it, we'd not need to hope for it anymore, would we? We wouldn't need to groan anymore. There'd be no more need for patience because there it is. It's arrived. However, we're now experiencing less than we should be, so we groan inwardly waiting for that hope, don't we? You guys do that. I'll pick up on this theme next, more next week, but I want you to understand that we know things are not the way they're supposed to be. And our hope in our present suffering is because our present suffering will come to an end, right? That's really the first reason we have hope in our suffering. This present suffering will come to an end with glory. It's temporary. This bondage to decay will come to an end, and we have that hope. We have hope in our sufferings because they will not carry on forever. The sufferings of the whole world will eventually come to an end at the restoration. 
That's the first reason we have hope in sufferings, because the bondage will come to an end. Look at how Paul emphasizes the temporary nature of it. Look at verse 15. I consider the suffering, excuse me, 18, that consider the sufferings of this present time, this present age, are not worth, in other words, there's a present age for these sufferings. That's going to end. And then there's going to be glory revealed. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing. Why is the creation waiting because it, and longing? Because it knows that this is coming to an end. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage decay. They know the creation itself knows that day is coming. It's groaning in hope that it will one day be set free. This is temporary. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Pains of childbirth. Pains of childbirth end, don't they? They come to an end, and then it's glory, isn't it? Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, verse 24. We're waiting for it with patience, verse 25. It's coming to an end. It's temporary. It's this age. It's a birth pain, not a death pain. You hear that? The suffering we experience now are birth pains for believers, not death pains. You see, unbelievers grieve as those who have no hope. Unbelievers grieve as those who have no hope. If you're an unbeliever, this right here, this right here, this sinful, painful, temporal life. So if you're an unbeliever, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, this sinful, painful, temporal life is as good as it's ever going to get for you. Hear that? It's interesting because when I go to the hospital, I've been in the hospital multiple times as a known unbeliever's dying. A known unbeliever. Everybody knows this guy's professing unbelief to the death. And as he's dying, and he's writhing in pain, I hear people say this, this statement. You know, we, we just need to let him go so he doesn't have to suffer anymore. Let me be clear, for the unbeliever, that horrific pain on that hospital bed is as good as it's going to get. For him to die when his eyes close in death, it's not going to be relief. It's going to be eternal, conscious torment in hell. That pain on that deathbed is rest for him comparatively, is relief for him comparatively. All of the good and all of the pain of this life were like flagposts shouting out to him, repent, look how good and how kind your God is, yet you refuse to come to him. Look how much he hates your sin, yet you do not flee to him in fear of his wrath and knowing he'll be kind to you. He has so clearly demonstrated both his love for you in his willingness to crush his own son on the cross and his hatred of your sin by the fact that he had to crush his own son on the cross so that he could relate to you. Turn to him and repent. However, if you've come to Christ, this suffering leads to glory and not death. This present suffering leads to glory, not death. There's two kinds of pains, right? They're the kinds of pain you benefit from, like exercise. I hate it. Rob and I are running right now. I hate it. Every step I hate, despise, but it has a benefit. 
every step. I mean, I despise having to wake up and get dressed to go, right? And yet there we are because it's beneficial. It's a pain that's beneficial, isn't it? But then there are pains that are not so beneficial, right? It is hurt. That's it. What Paul's talking about here is the difference between a birth pain and the kind of pain that has no benefit. The pain for believers that we suffer in this present age, all of it is a birth pain. And it leads to something glorious. You know, I've heard that there are the two worst pains a person can experience. One is giving birth. God bless all of you women who give us our glorious children, right? And some of you give us many of them, right? But I've heard that's the worst. The second worst pain I've heard, and I don't know if it's true, is passing a kidney stone. Let me tell you the difference between, and some people say the opposite, let me tell you the difference between those two kinds of pains, right? When you have a baby, after the birth is over, you get to look at your beautiful baby. When you pass a kidney stone, all you got left is a kidney stone. Nothing great comes of it, does it? This present time for believers is like a birth pain. The glory is coming. Jesus actually says this. He says this about suffering as believers. And I just want you to hear this in John 16, 20. He says this, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, right? But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Hear that? When the last act of this play starts, of this drama of redemption that's being played out in God's glorious theater, when that act happens, the joy you will receive will cause you not even to remember the pain you suffered anymore in that sense. And no one will ever take it from you. No one will be able to. Third, we have the first fruits of the Spirit as a guarantee that glory is coming. We have the first fruits of the Spirit as a guarantee that glory is coming. We have hope in our sufferings because we've been given the guarantee that the full harvest of God's glory is coming. What do I mean by that? We have not, what I mean is we have not been left without evidence that this age of glory eternally is coming. What's the evidence? God has promised us and sealed us with his Holy Spirit. The Spirit is called the guarantee of our inheritance in Ephesians 1. And here in Romans 8.23, Paul tells us this. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, hear that? The first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, redemption of our bodies. We have the first fruits of the Spirit now. What does that mean? What are the first fruits? Well, the first fruits are the idea that when you harvest the first fruits, it's a guarantee that the whole harvest is coming. Harvest the first fruits, it's a guarantee the whole harvest is coming. Hear that? The Spirit... Um, interestingly enough, was poured out when? On the day of Pentecost, right? On the church, the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was a, a feast, a celebration. It was a, in fact, it was specifically a harvest feast or celebration. And do you know which harvest feast or celebration it happened to be? The first fruits harvest feast. 
When God poured out his spirit on his people and he clothed them with power so that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When the spirit of God came upon the apostles and they began to preach the gospel to the people and 3,000 repented and believed and were saved that day and they continued to preach the gospel throughout the book of Acts and that same spirit being given to us, he is the first fruits. He was given to the church on the day of the harvest of first fruits, guaranteeing, guaranteeing that the rest of the harvest was going to come. The whole full harvest is coming. We now have the first fruits of the Spirit, but the full harvest is coming. God poured out His Spirit at the Pentecost harvest, guaranteeing, guaranteeing to us that He will pour out His Spirit in what is to come in full measure, and you will see his glory as he resurrects you to see it. Fourth, our, the reason we have hope in suffering is because the sufferings of this current world are not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed to us. Our sufferings, um, what Paul says there in verse 18, I consider the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing. That's the idea of weightiness. In other words, it, they, the sufferings of this present time have no weight. You go, Why? they seem very weighty They seem like they're crushing me and perplexing me and distressing me and causing me all kinds of pain and grief. Do they not? Yes, they do. However, they do not have weightiness when compared with the glory that is to be revealed. They're nothing. When you see the glory of God in its full revelation at the return of Jesus Christ, when you see the fourth act of this play of redemption lived out, when you see God's glory fully revealed in all creation in the way it was supposed to be, you will not even remember the sufferings of the past. You will see them and say, they're not even worth comparing to the glory I now see. The glory to be shown to us and in us is so glorious that the sufferings of the present time aren't even worth comparing with it. It's your hope. It's your hope. Sovereign grace, this is why we can live with hope as a church, isn't it? We can't see the glory that's to be revealed yet, but we have the Spirit as a guarantee it's coming. And we can't see the glory that's revealed yet, but we know that this is not the way that it's supposed to be. And we can't see the glory that's coming yet But we know it is coming because God has promised it. We've seen God's glory in creation. And we have seen God's glory as he's willing to suffer for his people and keep his law for his people and be punished for his people and be resurrected so that we would have life and pour out his spirit on his people and build a church for his people and give a word, this Bible, to his people so that we would know our hope. And give us visible reminders like communion to his people. And sending his spirit into our hearts to indwell us and to cause us to cry out, Abba, Father, Dad, we know you. You are not the unknown God. You are our Dad. And we trust you. We can endure all things for his sake. And we can take this glorious good news that God has made a way for us to not suffer this way endlessly because he sent his son for us. And that you should trust him, turn to him, and know eternal, abundant joy in him. Yes, you will suffer for a little while, 
But when he comes, no one will be able to take your joy away from you. It's the truth. It's the truth that we carry to people no matter the cost because we know the reward. We know the reward. You see, the eyes of men in this world are blinded by the God of this world. And they're blinded from seeing the light of the good news of the glory of Christ. Can't see it. They can't see it. And so we must preach about it to them. We must tell them and pray that God will open their eyes so that they can share in the last act of glory with us. We must. We have this treasure of the gospel, don't we? We have this treasure. We have the certainty of glory forever with Jesus. But we have this treasure, as Paul says, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into his presence. For it is for all your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison.